welcome, or welcome as we would say in Norwegian, to the Nordics Unveiled. I am Ernest Elbjørg and I hope you will join my exploration of Nordic. From mythology and folk traditions to lyrical, melancholic and often cautiously optimistic are only a few characters of Nordic. In a series of episodes, I will be joined by inspiring guests trying to break a few stereotypes and answer the question of what is typically Nordic? To learn more about conversations and guests, subscribe to The Nordics Unveiled on your favorite podcast provider or follow me on my Instagram, Facebook or Twitter account. This is The Nordics Unveiled. Before starting with the first episode, you may wonder why I should be speaking about the Nordics. The Nordic mythology has been following me since my birth, when my parents named me Elbjörg, an ancient Scandinavian name built of two words, Eld and Björg, Eld meaning fire and Björg meaning protector. Growing up in the valley of Valdres, underneath the mountain chain of Jotunheimen, the home of the Nordic gods, the mystic mythology and connection to folk music has profoundly shaped my artistry. So the mystery of the fire protector continues to follow my music adventure as an artist on stages around the globe. Now, shifting the stage from my podcast microphone, I welcome you on the journey to the north. In the very first episode, I am thrilled to welcome one of Norway's most celebrated composers, Lasse Thorsen. Speaking from my own experiences, when entering his sound world, you're taking on an incredible journey of sounds and surprises. Lasse is the recipient of numerous international prizes and accolades, including the most prestigious Scandinavian award, the Nordic Music Prize. He is also a professor of composition at the Norwegian State Academy of Music, where he teaches composition, electroacoustic music and sonology. Equally in demand as a lecturer around the world, I could not be happier to have him as my guest today, talking about his view on the Nordic. And I would like to start by saying... A huge uh, thank you to you, Lasse, for being here today. It's such a pleasure to have you as my guest. Um, I feel so lucky to have played works by you. You've composed um, two fantastic pieces that I have played uh, with my sister and the Tranam soloist, and also together with Life of Ansnes as part of our Ulebul documentary. So I thought, let's just dive right into it. What is your interpretation of the Nordic sound? Well, Nordic sound is not very easy to describe when you are part of the Nordic scene yourself. <laughs> so uh, to describe it, it's like you you have to kind of see it through how others see the Nordic sound and whether there are things that are in common between the. And when you say Nordic, I think you you would include um, Scandinavia. Yes, I do. And maybe Finland. Mm-hmm. And maybe the Baltic nations. Then we are starting to get wide, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so yeah. if there is a sound that is in common, um, of course we speak now perhaps most of all musical sound, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would then say that perhaps there is no Nordic sound other than there is a Nordic time. Hmm. And uh, meaning that... Uh, I perceive there is another temporality going on in music from these countries. Uh, and that includes the Baltic countries as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it is a kind of more, it's a slower time. And 
I think part of it is the fact that, well, until recently, most of us had rather profound experiences with nature and landscapes. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think uh, that experience with landscape, with, let's say, being in nature, not just looking at it, I mean, st staying in places where things do not move so fast, um, being at, at the sea, for example, in a boat where you are in a great expanse mm -hmm. and you are just a little part of a kind of infinite environment that could uh, devour you in any mom moment if you're unlucky or being in a mountain area where you are left to yourself. Um, Anyway, before the mobile phone entered the scene, uh, and that doesn't always work in these regions. <laughs> so, uh, so that's the combination of um, of being in places where there is a slow time, and yet there is a, what I could call an existential awareness that's been created by that environment. And I think the first thing that entered my mind was I was, uh, I think, 16 years and I spent uh, time at a um, mountain farm in um, uh, in a place called Beitu. <laughs> and I and there is a mountain there called Schlettefjell. Now there is a ski lift there, but then it wasn't. So I climbed that mountain in, in with skis and deep, deep snow. And it's like a little bit as if when you, after a couple of hours, think now you have to be on top and still there is another hill to, and then another hill. And when I finally arrived close to the top, then rises above me even higher peaks and mountains. And I remember at that time, I was so kind of struck by the presence of these mountains. Uh, after that long ascent, and uh, it shook me and it uh, made me realize that here I am a little bit little particle in an enormous cosmos. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think it's impressions like this that sh perhaps more often shape people from the Scandinavian countries than uh, people from countries where uh, urbanity uh, is the kind of standard of, mm -hmm. for time and experience. It's something about um, the core elements, you know, where you really feel like you are connected to something. But it, it is. You, yeah, but do you think that also can show itself in sound? Well, of course, it, it shows itself in music. And I remember a performance of my violin concerto in Norrköping in Sweden mm -hmm. many years ago. And I have a conversation. And in this piece, I mean, I have written piece with I've written a piece with uh, Norwegian folk music. Okay, but in this, in my violin concerto, there is not, none of that. And uh, so I didn't think that had anything to do with being Norwegian or whatever. But then I have a conversation with a Swedish composer who had been to the concert. And he says, oh, I, I think that your music was so Norwegian. And I say, <laughs> how come? I mean, hello. Uh, and, and he says, well, there are these great kind of like planes of sound and then there is, you know, one individual uh, roaming through these enormous expanses. And that is a kind of feeling that he would 
you know, identify as being <laughs> Norwegian. Like one against the big nature, kind yes, of. Huh? Yes. But I know that um, since you talk about folk music, I, I really am so curious to know a little bit more about how you use folk music in your your sound universe because i know a little bit from experience particularly when you were actually staying up in valdres in the cabin next to my family house and i think my mom was uh, eager as ever to give uh, some notations and folk music um, archives um, as part of research but one thing that is very fascinating about how you are able to translate that to your um, system is that, you know, folk music is not really supposed to be written down and it's all oral and according to tradition, you really should learn it from generation to generation and it's not so easy to know how you actually write it down because of all the scales, all the different harmonics and notalities. So I'm just really curious, how, how do you notate down? Well, first of all, um, I I learn much more from Norwegian folk music when I can have a recording or a dialogue with a fiddler or a singer, folk singer, than studying already transcribed pieces. But they can be helpful, of course. But um, part of my creativity is really how to use your ear, mm-hmm. how to listen. Uh, and there are a number of things that uh, cannot be directly um, transferred into traditional no- notation of that music. Because it's a music made by the air as, uh, I, I'm, by listening and by practicing simply. And so uh, of the things that I found interesting, uh, perhaps I would say three things. Um, one is the fact that rhythm often is not totally straight. It has interesting small um, deviations. So, for example, in the springa, there is a three meter, but what kind of three meter? Um, so, in fact, there are a lot of three meters going on, and we are completely able to count to three, not counting one, two, three, one two, three, but counting one, two, three, one, two, three. But the counting works as well, even if the beats are not absolutely regular. So I found a way to notate that and say, okay, we have a three meter, but what are the duration of of the beats? Then the next thing I have uh, been looking into in Norwegian folk music, and that applies to the more archaic folk music, is the tonality. Because this music has been... Played and transferred from generation with a kind of consciousness of intervals, intervals that were not influenced by the well-tempered tonality that has been dominant since uh, the 1700s, and so there are also fine deviations in tonality uh, and. Uh, you know, well, I can I can tell you a funny story. Um, having made some uh, or included some element of that tonality into a piece I wrote for Slow Philharmonic in, I think it was nineteen ninety three. One of the uh, one of the pensioned Philharmonic player 
came to me afterwards and said, well, what you made as a composition was great, but you had some devilish um, intervals included in there. Okay, devilish? I mean, what do you mean? You, <laughs> you include to, to that kind of microtonality you heard in the solo field? Yes, exactly, that one was what I heard. And, 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 and you should never do that anymore, he said. Well, oh. listen, I said, I mean, this is a part of Norwegian folk music. Mm. Norwegian folk music. Now, you know, there are peasants that have been big fingers they cannot play you know a pure note oh my goodness uh, <laughs> they say sorry you know it's not just that uh, you can't blame it on the fingers because they sing that way as well yes. okay anyway he said whatever don't make ever don't ever make that kind of music again oh my goodness i i know you didn't listen to him and that's good because we do need to have all those tonalities out there but that's really I think that's really funny. So, so um, you know, uh, using that tonality is uh, demanding new notation. It's uh, challenging for the musicians. It's very hard to get into, for example, two mm -hmm. strings in the orchestra. And uh, and anyway, uh, uh, contemporary music has provided the tools for notating that perfectly. So notation is no trouble, but uh, to to get musicians who are not trained in it mm -hmm. to do it exactly, that's a challenge. And of course, harmony is. One thing which becomes problematic, and then I've gone into spectral music and just intonation and many other, you know, theories about harmony that demand yes. micro microtonality to, in order to find ways and means to make harmony using microtonality. And then I said exactly. there were th yeah. three things, mm. uh, and the third thing is actually ornamentation. Mm. Uh, the way you know an interval is a distance between distance between two sounds. The uh, the what is an ornament in ornament is for example how to characterize that leap to prepare it comes a leap to what happens in the during the leap what is the attack of the next note is it uh, you know hard is it sliding is it uh, coming from the opposite direction in the micro sense and so on and and moreover you know just to hold a note i mean notation usually said okay this note lasts for three beats but it forgets to uh, kind of be aware that these three beats are filled with sound and something can happen in, in that duration which makes the sound live while it, it just stays there for three beats. And, mm -hmm. and this is uh, well, the word of ornaments in folk music, which I found extremely also interesting. Yeah, me too. And I think it's something so specific also to Norway, the, the kind of ornamentation. You find it in, in the fiddle music and you find it in, in also the the, um, uh, the singing, uh, in kveing, as we say. And But have you have you found that anywhere else around the world? Or do you think that specific Norwegian, that type of tonality? Uh, tonality is, um, uh, if you, I mean, in a way there is no fixed Norwegian system of modes, but... And, and in fact, the idea of a mode or a scale is absent from the tradition as such. Mm. Um, so whatever we will speak of scales or modes in Norwegian archaic folk music is an afterwards construction. Yes. Um, but if we construct some of these things we have, well, there are evident um, similarities with scales used in, in the Near East and in India. There are, there are common Mm -hmm. Let's say scales. 
uh, apart from the fact that scales is not a part of the folk music, but mm. you come closer to an, an idea you find in Iran, which is called the gusha, mm. the gusha, which is small, kind of three, four notes together. Mm. And these three, four notes have to be played in a particular, you know, microtone configuration. And when you com that, combine that with other gush, then uh, that, even if you use more or less the same um, pitches, they will be, they have to be adjusted because they have an internal relationship which is fixed mm. as a kind of little cell in the music. And I think that also comes close to what you find in Norwegian folk music and, and also in particularly folk music of Sweden, the western part of Sweden. Right. And, and uh, so, so that's, that's the thing. And then, of course, the question of ornamentation. Well, that's, uh, that's an interesting thing, but that's, I mean, normal in most folk music. And we may have some special, you know, um, twist on that. But uh, in a way, ornaments is uh, in a way standard in folk music that you, you, you trill with notes and you slide with them and so on. Do you find inspiration in nature? Absolutely. I know you had a monumental piece that was premiered last year at Ultiman, which was called The Arctic, if I'm not mistaken. It's called The Sound of Arctic. The Sound of Arctic. And it's um, a massive piece. It's, uh, and it really captures uh, and puts spotlight on what's happening up in the Arctic, and not to mention what an incredible force it is. Um, it was, how was it for you to prepare for writing such a piece? Well, the orchestra was very generous to me and they provided me a place in a research boat mm. together with 15-20 scientists that mm. go for expeditions around Spitsbergen, which you know is uh, this archipelago of islands close to the North Pole. I mean, it's 150 uh, or, or 1500 kilometers north of the north coast of Norway. And um, so I must say the combination then of experiencing nature, but also learning about it through the eyes of the scientists was, this was just enormous. And later I also went up there and had myself a hut in, uh, up in the wilderness there and had to go around with a gun in order to, you know, be sure to not be killed by a polar bear. But anyway, um, it made an enormous impression on me. Just to mention one thing, you know, when we were there in summer, there is this endless day there, sunlight all day around. And so there are, there are luminous spaces, you know, in the sea, in above you, in the white snow and so on. And Okay, when you are there, you are there. But when you go back and you re-visualize the place that you were, you realize that this space and this light is also a sp the space and light of your own soul room, or your own soul space. And in a way, you can move in that soul space freely and you can go into the depths of that the, the abyss is there under the, the glaciers and you can travel the mountains and go infinitely out in the, the ocean and so on. And, and so all of that, in a way, opens a certain, certain door to faculties of the soul. And when you make these movements in retrospect, actually, it releases emotions mm. and feelings. Uh, so it is as if nature 
could be, let us say, a part of our inner, the anatomy of our soul and our uh, emotions and our body. And you can think of that, that people who live there and experience these things before they had a lot of literature and writing and so on, they also were thinking about themselves and about, about life in terms of these enormous impressions of nature mm. uh, that, that, they, 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 um, that were integral to their lives. Yeah. I want to ask you, Lasse, do you, if you talk about yourself, which I don't, you probably don't do so much, but if you talk about yourself, would you label yourself as a Norwegian composer? Do you think that's important to you? No, it hasn't been. No? Um, and my use of folk music, in a way, came after a period in which I studied very much, let's say, ethnomusic, music from all over the world. Yeah. Um, and I, mind you, I started composing in the 1970s, although I composed a few pieces before that. But, but uh, in the 70s, first time, we had LPs with uh, recordings of Norwegian folk music. They were very, very, very few. And, but also then came Folkways records with, uh, you know, recordings from all over the world and then UNESCO series and so on. And I listened intensively to that mm -hmm. uh, because I realized that contemporary music at the time had communication problems. Mm -hmm. uh, one had discovered many sonorities and, and notation methods and structural uh, things and textures that were fascinating, but unfortunately uh, didn't communicate very well with an audience. Uh, and uh, so when you start to study music all around the world, you find that some of these sounds and textures have already been discovered mm. in other um, contexts. And because they have survived, they've been able to communicate. Mm. So my interest was also then what what how do they organize sound categories um, that okay they exist in contemporary music but they are in other you know countries and cultures they are put in a context in which it, it gets a signification for 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 the larger audience and that was my first interest for folk music and then uh, I, after a while I kind of reasoned that. I cannot, let's say, go around with a turban in Norway and <laughs> uh, kind of copy Indian or, or music or Japanese sham, sham, shamisen or shakuhachi and, and Tibetan, you know, mm. uh, monks singing, whatever. Uh, I have to f see whether I can integrate that into my roots in Norway. And that's when I started to look very seriously at Norwegian folk music. Um, although I have been, let's just say, um, imbricating in some of my Norwegian folk music influences from other cultures, I, I, I'm mixing things. Mm -hmm. But but basically, I, I turn to the archaic and Norwegian music to to solve some of my questions. Is that um, how you found your sound? It was a part of it, mm, anyway. Big yeah. mix. It was an important mm. part of it. Mm -hmm. and, and I would perhaps say that um, some of the works I wrote using Norwegian folk music has turned out to be also the, most, the ones most played. Yeah. Do you think Norwegian listeners, and those are the ones I'm talking about particularly now, but do you think they can recognize, for instance, when you use a springer or a hulling, 
um, recognize where it comes from? Well, perhaps uh, it's, it's a question whether they know already some things about Norwegian folk music. And uh, I've been a lot to France and, um, and uh, they have had a fantastic collection of, of folk music on their series Okora, mm. which was started, by the way, by Pierre Schaeffer, who was, uh, you know, my perhaps main mentor when uh, I did my studies there. Um, and also, um, they are published in Musée de l'Homme. They have fantastic collections of human voice and the use mm. of human voice. Strangely enough, none of these have, have included Norwegian folk music mm. and folk singing. And, mm. uh, and so I think, in a way, some of this remains a secret to, to, <laughs> uh, to, to us yeah. in, here in, in Norway. But speaking of... Um singing and sound and compare it also to I mean I know you've written a lot for for string players very uh, easy question for you but uh, what do you prefer composing for what instrument well I of course basically I'm a pianist mm. but I find it very hard to write for the piano because so much is done and so many cliches stick in your fingers anyway <laughs> so I have write, written uh, I use the piano in a number of my works. The disadvantages is, of course, that uh, I cannot write microtonally for the piano. You can retune it, but for some reason, detuned or retuned or, uh, you know, piano with changed tuning is sounding so incredibly false to my ear, so I, I don't <laughs> like it. I see. Uh, um, so, therefore, I, I have very much favoured strings because... They have complete control, not only of the pitch, but also of the production of the sound mm. uh, with the right hand, with the, with the bow. And, and you know, um, th this is a part of music which is overlooked by music theory. Music theory is about what the string player could do with his, le could do with his left hand, whereas, you know, energy... Uh, comes from the right hand. Articulation comes from the right hand and the connection between the player's body and the sound of the instrument comes through the right hand, through the bow, transmitted through the bow. And therefore, uh, through that kind of causal chain that goes through the body into the arm, into the bow, into the string, into the sound, there are so many uh, informations about feeling and expression that can be conveyed. So that's why I, I like string instruments a lot. And then there is a human voice. Mm -hmm. And so I actually made a, a big project um, starting for 16 years ago called the Concrescence Project, in which I wanted to do something with traditional Western singing because uh, I, and I wanted to, to again prune onto the capacities that a classical singer has um, the possibility to, to sing in microtonality which means you can't use the vibrato because the vibrato destroys everything uh, then <laughs> then uh, you must also be able to I, 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 you must not but I, I wanted singers to learn to produce overtones like mm -hmm. you do in Mongolian singing right. but to do that I, interestingly I discovered uh, you must also be able to put your larynx 
uh, in the right position. And actually, the larynx can be moved up and down, but classical singers are told to put it in a lower position. And after 20 years of that, they can't move it anymore. Hmm. But, but actually, moving larynx up and down produces, you know, like a more raucous sound, like more ethnic sound or like classical sound and so on. So in the same way as a string player can produce different timbres by, by placing the bows bow on different positions in the string, the singers actually can produce different timbres, basically. And so this led me into uh, writing um, pieces uh, for singers who after one or two years training could do these things. <laughs> wow. And so one of these was the, the Nordic Voices. I trained, there was a training program from them in two years and I wrote pieces for them. <laughs> Some of them I wrote uh, in your, your um, parents' home in, yes. in uh, Ardal, actually. And I won the Nordic uh, um, Council's Music Prize for these pieces. And others I wrote for the Latvian Radio Choir. Exactly. But why does it take two years? Is it because they are trained in such a different way that you have to physically do something different? Well, in order to train to sing a neutral third, for example, uh -huh. you must have a kind of oral training uh -huh. to, to do that. But to sing overtones, mm. that is not something you can do like a little trick, you know. And I'm asking them not only to say, something like that. I said, okay, now produce number three, number four, number five, up to number 11 or 12, you know, and be precise about which of them you produce. And that is a, a technique which, which uh, you must practice almost daily for, for mm -hmm. a year or so before you really can master but when you say third and fourth and, and eleventh, what do you mean by that? What I is mean that? the number of the harmonics. Oh, I see. Like a, mm. I say, So I meant now, now down, wow. to, now down to number five, six, seven, eight, uh. nine, ten. This was one, uh. the number of the harmonics I, I produced. Fantastic. Okay. But it's a big difference, actually, the nuances within there. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and so these are also, you know, yeah. resonances of yeah. the vowels in a way. Yes. But you need full control to be able to do that. Yes, you need, yes. you do. And there is, you know, so well, yeah, I can speak about that, yeah. but okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. but then... Um, do we don't have anything like that, do we, in the kind of Norwegian um, song history, do we? Not in the song history, but we no. have the Jews harp ah, history. Yes. And the Jews harp pitches are produced exactly by that kind of technique, mm. by the resonance of, of the mouth, basically. And, uh, and so the whole world of Jew, Jews harp playing also mm. comes as a part of my kind of ethnic mm. luggage with which I, you know, can take inspiration. Yeah. For example, in, in you know, in Yakutia, in, in the eastern Siberia, they have fantastic Jews harp yeah. traditions in which they, you know, play a very rhythmical music, not melodic, mm -hmm. but rhythmic, going up and down in the spectrum. So, of yeah. course, spectral movement is a part. Is an other thing that was discovered, let us say, in in in. You know, in hyphens, discovered in in France and so on with computers analyzing the spectrum. But in fact, moving through the sound spectrum is something that <clears throat> in certain cultures they have been uh, doing that for, mm -hmm. for a few thousand years, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> already. 
I am so incredibly fascinated by how they play, as we say in Norwegian, Munharpe, but uh, the, just how you are able to actually make melodies out of it, because it is, you know, you just use it your mouth and then you have the piece of the metal and then you use the, you know, how to kind of make the rhythm sound. It's mm-hmm. really interesting. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And actually, Norway is in the top of the world with regards to melodic juice harp playing. Mm-hmm. That, that's a special thing about Norway in the yeah. world of juice harps. <laughs> And then, of course, there is the tongue. You strike the tongue that vibrates, you see. And the striking of that tongue is, in, in again, again something I find so interesting because it's equivalent of the movement of the bowing in mm. fiddle music. And in, like in hulling or other, you know, ganga, two-meter um, music in Norway, the movement of the right hand of the player goes mm. has a complex rhythm that moves you know, against the tapping of the feet, which is usually pretty regular, although they can be doubled. But then there is also the rhythm of the fingers. So in mm-hmm. fact, you know, a, a juicer player or a fiddler is keeping trace of three rhythms as a, at a time, um, which is already, you know, a whole musical structure by itself if you yes. start to decode it. And it's a very good... Uh brain capacity to be able to do it. It is, and I think it's a part of a kind of almost ecstatic state into which a player uh, moves because it's totally absorbing Mm. also with body, with attention and with, you know, just moving with the music. Yeah, and I think a lot of what I find very fascinating is that a lot of this is talking about identities like you talked about a bit earlier about the specific rhythms which you find in Norway and I know from my valley of Valdes we have the Valdes Springer you know which has its own identity and the rhythm and if you if you are known in in the world of folk music I think you are able to hear where people are from just by how they play and I think that's something that's very specific to Norway. It may be a, a function of the all the valleys that has has cut people that have pe- cut people off from them, yeah. off from each other in ancient times. But the situation is changing now. I mean, until recently, or recently perhaps 30, 40 years ago, fiddlers were not allowed to play in the church yeah. because the fiddle was regarded as the instrument of the devil. Uh, and again, that was also partly because there was some kind of spiritist. Uh, culture that went with some of, you know, the playing of, of uh, fiddle music in ancient times. Uh, but then, uh, as of recently, uh, fiddle, fiddlers have been playing with the organs and that mm-hmm. affects, of course, tuning. Yes. So, so uh, um, and then also the radio, uh, the Germans confiscated all the radios when they came in 1940 and and uh, then it took many years before the radio was back in people's homes and and in a way that served to protect protect also some of the oral traditions mm. of the archaic music. Um, so it has stayed on and is still an um, organic tradition that's been carried on. But because there is no theory around folk, the folk music, and because there is no solfege of playing these scales, not even the concept of the scale, it's very easy for people who play by air to slide into just other habits, hardly without any, uh, noticing it. Mm. So, so, uh, so that <laughs> has concerned me a little bit. And mm. um, so I have been arguing in, in Norwegian Academy of Music for, for, the, for that one should develop a solfege for folk musicians. Uh, that they can 
know exactly what interval they are playing yeah, yeah. Uh, and what interval they should play if you do it, want to do it in the old way. I also, I mean, coming also from the folk music tradition, I I always liked so much the um, function that uh, those particular tunes have to specific time and places and occasions. To me, this is probably the most Norwegian I can think of. I don't really, I haven't come across that in many other countries, um, but maybe you can enlighten me a bit on that, Lasse. Well, I think uh, the use of different musics for different occasions, you find a lot of that in uh, places where there are still rural yeah. societies, which is gone in West Europe generally. Mm. But if you go to East Europe, uh, you know, old Yugoslavia and, uh, uh, you know, S Serbia, Bulgaria, and so on, you find it there, mm -hmm. and in in eastern countries, in, in, and in Africa, not to speak. I mean, hello, uh, all people that live in the kind of continuation of of the old rustic, you know, way of living, mm -hmm. have these celebrations of the year, of the seasons, often then connected with rites of fertility, marriage, celebrations. Uh, and yeah sacred functions and so on so that's not really typical norwegian then it's not no. I'm, I'm sorry to say <laughs> no, no but then we have cleared say, something but, up but, that's uh, good <laughs> yes yes no no i but, you know i think there are more things in common with folk music and these kind of um uh, let's say uh, countryside based cultures and there are more things in common than maybe yeah. different i am um, quite curious to ask you what you think is the biggest difference in uh, Norwegian composers today compared to 20 years ago or compared to 50 years ago? Yeah, I have been teaching composition almost uh, so 50 years, let's say 45 years, mm. or been into that environment of comp teaching composition, being taught composition also. Mm. Um, so um, you can say in the 70s, 80s and long into the 90s uh, it was evident that the contemporary composer was supposed to kind of be the one to inherit and carry on almost like a tradition mm -hmm. it was a kind of eth ethical ethical demand okay. to do something modern yeah. and I explained the reasons namely the fact that one that did not want to enter into uh, the, the classical music that had been the subject of political misuse both by the Nazis and uh, the Soviet communists mm -hmm. uh, and also creating a music which would evoke a, a, a reaction in the audience, not just musical pleasure, but also then, you know, getting people to be awake. Mm -hmm. And so that type of protest um, music was a part of the game. Mm -hmm. No, I must admit personally, I was not so much into that protest movement. movement. I rather wanted to use the results of modernism to turn that into a more communicative way of using that. And mm -hmm. in Norway, we actually then taught um, um, theory of what we called oral sonology, um, which then is a 
study of how the air organizes what it has into gestalts, you know, like orderly forms. Yes. Uh, problem then of with some contemporary music was it didn't fit into that, but perhaps there were some new things, or perhaps it was just what we would call chaos, and and so that you can say in in Norway we the composers educated in Oslo for, for between 1978 and and up to recently had actually rather thorough training in oral awareness. Mm. Now, later, that entered also the main currents in contemporary music uh, more indirectly, but, for example, spectral music was a reaction against too much theory mm. uh, being imposed on music, a theory that was not what was mathematical or whatever, but it wasn't actually derived from the sound or the, the music itself. Mm. So many things changed and there came the computers that could, you know, replay the orchestral score for you and so on. So so that uh, changed a few things. Um, I think uh, today um, one could say that uh, there may be a greater freedom of expression that seems to be... Um, common denominator among Norwegian composers. And that's, a res uh, that's in fact, a uh, result of a policy that Finn Mortensen was the first professor of composition at the academy introduced, and, and Olaf Anton Thomason and I have been carrying it on, and the next generation with Henrik Stenius and Aspen Skolton has been carrying on, namely the fact that choosing your styles should not be ultimately a question of being drilled into a particular technique and language. It, you also, the composer has to find a style which is, you know, feels comfortable, feels right, uh, and so on. And so there is also um, a, a great deal of acceptance of um, composers making different choices. And so, well, um, I think uh, perhaps that spirit of freedom is uh, something which has been uh, perceptible uh, with Norwegian composers until recently. Now, um, uh, we are entering into a generation that I think is the me generation. <laughs> the, as I started to say, in the 70s and 80s, we felt we, we were entering into a world of, you know, contemporary music, the contemporary music world, which is still there, of course, but uh, now, all over, people, it's not like People feel that that is a given. They kind of have to start with their private story with me, what I experienced was I was a child, you know, this, that and the other, uh, which is a kind of private and idiosyncratic things. And also the, the hope of entering the public, the kind of public scene is, some, for, for some of the young people, seems so incredibly far away. <laughs> Uh, and with this also goes a certain disregard for, from, for, for, you know, musical craft, for training your pen, as it were. Now, that's not an accusation I would launch against the uh, training at the academy, but it is actually a kind of trend mm -hmm. that we have to start, start music from, from basic again. And if you have a choir, the choir should say hi and lift their hand and boof and all that <laughs> and, and move a little bit here and there. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, consideration of... 
quality of voice, of of structure, of composition, of form building structures, and so on. All that is is kind of regarded a little bit, you know, above what what one should. One should be more sloppy, more and whatever. So so then these are these are a little bit my my perhaps um, old man's reflections of what I, <laughs> where I think the world will, is is moving uh, in, in the contemporary field. I have to say, Lasse, I could listen to you for hours and hours. <laughs> you have, you have, um, you're such an inspiration, and I really am so grateful that you wanted to share your thoughts on these subjects with us here today. And um, I really want to thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I was honored to be invited. Thank you so much for joining me for the Nordics Unveiled. My name is Elvirgen Singh, and I hope you will continue following my next episodes on your favorite podcast platform. The music in the introduction is from Edvard Grieg's Violin Sonata in G Major, Opus 13, with myself on violin and pianist Simon Trapczewski, released on BIS Records.